Please rise if you are able in honor of the Word of God. And our reading this morning is taken from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to see so many of you, especially on the outer, outer edges. Not so much in the middle, but on the outer edges, that's good. It's good to be here. Um, as you probably have read, if you, if you read the MailChimp, and I can actually tell you which ones of you do, because I can see who clicks and who opens it, but there's lots of stuff going on in, in Payless. I received emails last night that said that all of the new uh, marketing materials, all of our new signage, all of our new door hangers, all of that stuff has actually shipped to me. And so we are, we are ready for August. It is going to be an absolutely splendid and fantastic time. So we would appreciate your prayers over the course of the next month as we get ready to do this kind of relaunching as redemption. But with that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can be here together this morning as your people, as your sheep even. Father, again, we thank you that you have preserved for us 150 songs of your people that were intended to be sung together by your people as part of worship. And so as we look at this familiar psalm, Father, we pray that you would make it clear to us the work that you are doing in our own hearts to remind us not only of who we are, but who you are and what you have done to us through Christ our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So as Brent said, this is probably one of the most famous psalms in all of the Bible, Psalm 23, probably one of the most famous passages. And for those of us who maybe didn't grow up in the church, our first experience with this psalm came from watching TV. We were watching maybe a war movie where the night before the big battle, you know, the, the, the padres walking around, the chaplains walking around, and, and the soldiers can hear this psalm being read. Or maybe we remember seeing a movie where somebody is lying on their deathbed and they ask to see the priest and the priest is there. And again, he reads and recites this psalm. And maybe some of us have seen the movies where the person is, you know, if it's an old Western, you know, they're heading to the gallows or they're heading, you know, down this long walk to the execution chamber and the priest is there maybe engaged, maybe unengaged, maybe he's just a hired hand, and he's reading this psalm. And the crazy thing about it is, in every single one of those situations, they usually end exactly the same way. 
the calamity that they were worried about facing that was coming at them like an oncoming steam train actually runs them completely over. God doesn't swoop down at the last minute and rescue them from it. They oftentimes meet, meet their demise. And so that really brings up this question, why this psalm then? Why this psalm? If God doesn't just swoop down every time that we call on him, why, why this psalm? How is this comforting? How does this bring about confidence? And so maybe, if we were honest with each other, maybe some of you are here this morning, and the question that you have, or maybe the statement that you have is, okay, so if I were to be completely honest, I would tell you that I feel like I have lived most of my life in the valley of the shadow of death. And I'm still there right now. Maybe some of you are saying, okay, where, where is my green pasture? Where are my still waters? Where is the table laid before me in the presence of my enemies? Where is my overflowing cup? Where, why don't I have this sense that I'm dwelling in the house of the Lord forever? Why, why is that? And so here's the great thing. The great thing about the Bible and the great thing about the Psalms is what the Psalms do, and hopefully we have seen this over the course of these weeks, is that the Psalms give us permission. They invite us to bring our confusion, to bring our anger, to bring every emotion that we have as real people and to bring it before the Lord as worship. Think about that. That you're invited in your confusion, in your frustration, in your bewilderment to actually bring that to the Lord as worship. That's what this psalm is. This psalm is a psalm to be sung as worship. And so it invites you to take that emotion and say, Lord, I'm bringing this before you as worship. So everybody who's here has probably heard this, I don't know, many times, shall we say, that we bear the image of God that we bear the image of God in many ways. We are created to be creative, to rule over all the earth, to multiply, to fill it with his glory. And so there are lots of ways in which we, as God's people, are image bearers. But there are very important ways in which we are not completely bearing the image of God. We are not all-powerful. We are not all-knowing. And we are not self-sufficient. We, we wish we were. We wish we had superpowers, right? We wish that we were like Iron Man or Superman or Batman and that like no matter what situation was facing us, we could overcome it through our own strength. Now that's not the picture though that the Bible gives us. This psalm refers to us as sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, you know that they are far, far, far away from having any traits of superheroes. They are in great need of being helped. And that's what this psalm is about. This psalm is about reminding us of who we are and that in the midst of who we are, we can have confidence in God to rescue us from our, from our reality. So if you look at their psalm this morning, what you'll see here is that it starts off, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But before that, 
Uh, what's not printed in your bulletin, I think, is it? It's not printed in there. It says a Psalm of David. That's not in there, is it? No. So this is important. It's important. It's okay, this not in, but it's important. I'm going to tell you why. Because we don't know whether or not David wrote this psalm, and so it's a psalm by David, or whether it's a psalm about David, like it's a psalm of David's time and life. I tend to lean towards the latter, and I lean towards it that, for this reason. It says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you can either take that to mean in God's community, or you can take it to mean I, can, I will be able to dwell in the temple forever. But regardless of how you take it, what this psalm is supposed to do is conjure up in the minds of the people who were hearing it and singing it, the history that they had with God of his rescue through the exodus and how he was with them. And from all of that to have confidence in God. But then we get to do even one more thing. So in a lot of the Old Testament, when we preach the Old Testament, what we, what Jeff and I and Brent always try to do is we try to connect the Old Testament to Christ somehow. And sometimes we kind of have to work at it. But this is a passage you don't have to work at it at all. Jesus makes it very clear that he thinks this is about himself. He says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold and I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. So he says clearly, I am the good shepherd. And if you were a Bible scholar, you would say, well, this is really about Ezekiel chapter 34, where Ezekiel is talking. And this is the one, this is the passage in the Bible that makes every pastor terrified. Because Ezekiel 34 says, hey, shepherds, guess what? You've not been doing a good job of taking care of the sheep that I entrusted to you. You've been getting fat on, their own, on your behalf. You've, you've been exploiting them. You've not been caring for them. You've not been seeking after them. And because of that, I'm going to blow you away. And you're not going to enjoy it. So it's terrifying. But against that, we have this picture of Jesus as the good shepherd who does all of those things right. And Jesus takes that and owns it. And so we can say that he's owning this. And so not only are we called to have confidence in God, but confidence in in Christ. That's what this passage is about. Confidence in God's ability to rescue us from our own frailty because we're not self-sufficient. We wish we were, but we're not self-sufficient. Look at what it says. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. What this passage says is that God leads us into places of flourishing, that he leads us into places of flourishing. So if you were to back up and you say, okay, what's the context? What were the people thinking about? They were thinking about the Exodus. And so you remember the Exodus, right? You remember that the people were in slavery. They were in captivity in Egypt. They were being exploited. They were being forced to work under horrible conditions for really no benefit. It was horrible. They were having to work to kind of earn their own keep as slaves. And in the middle of that, 
God extended his hand and rescued them out of the middle of that slavery. And over the course of 40 years, he brings them into this land flowing with milk and honey. And he places them there. So should we read this psalm and say to ourselves, so maybe what this psalm is promising us is a life of ease and a life of luxury and a life of having everything that we want. I wish that was true, but it's not because that's not what God's people have routinely experienced. They've not experienced that. What this is talking about is being led to a place of flourishing that is in the kingdom of God. We sing this psalm, psalm based on Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. That one day in the kingdom of God is better than a thousand days anywhere else. And the place of flourishing that God leads us to is in his kingdom. So now if, if you think to yourself, you know what, my life's pretty good right now. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. That is insignificant to how wonderful your life is going to be in the kingdom of God. That all of us as Christians, what we're supposed to know, what we're supposed to believe, is that Christ rescued us from working for our own acceptance, from being in slavery. And maybe some of you have never known what that felt like. To toil and work for nothing to feel like you're constantly having to earn your keep. What this passage says is that Christ rescues us from that. And he brings us into a kingdom where we don't work to be accepted. That our work becomes an act of worship. It says in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This is the blessing of living in the kingdom. This is the green pastures and the still waters is living in the kingdom, that the kingdom of God, living in the kingdom of God as God's people is better. It is the place for you to flourish. Even through the midst of the chaos of everyday life and raising kids and having a difficult job and difficult family situations, life in the kingdom of God is the place where we're called to flourish. He doesn't just lead us into a place of flourishing. It says he leads us in paths of flourishing. It says he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So we have this memory of Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we picture ourselves maybe sitting on a couch, having grapes served to us, I'm weary and heavy laden and a little fan going on us. And there's a sense in which that, that is right. That being with Christ and being in him and being able to rest in him is that. But he also says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. That one of the ways that God rescues us from our frailty and brings us into flourishing is to actually teach us what flourishing is like to set before us a path, a way of living that is appropriate for our own flourishing that seems completely counterintuitive. So if you turn on the TV or you listen to your friends at school or in the workplace, 
You might devise that in your head, the way to get ahead, the way to get accepted is to do these things, to treat people this way, to treat your employer this way, to treat your employees this way, to treat your uh, fellow students this way so that you can get ahead and so that you can get accepted, so that you can flourish. And that seems completely reasonable based on what we see. But what this psalm says is that those are not the paths of righteousness. Those are not the paths of flourishing. That the path for us to flourish actually looks very different than the way that the world describes it. The way that we get ahead is through humility and service. That the way that we get ahead is through honesty and integrity. That the way in which we flourish is by offering justice and mercy to those around us. That this is the path of flourishing for us. That God not only takes us and places his, us in his kingdom so that we can flourish, but he actually puts us in a path of flourishing and says, this is the way that you move forward. This is the way that you come to flourish in my kingdom. And the great thing is, is that he does that. He teaches us how to flourish and places us in a place to flourish, not just for our benefit, but for his. It says he does it for his name's sake that our flourishing is to bring him glory. Not to bring us glory. Any glory that we get from our coworkers and, and people that we associate with is always penultimate. It's always not the real reason that we're doing this. It's so that God can be brought glory. That's what this says. And so he rescues us from our frailty, from the fact that we're, that we're weak and that we're not self-sufficient, and he brings us to a place of flourishing. But this psalm also teaches us that we can have confidence in God to rescue us from our fear. So what do we fear? What maybe were the people who read this psalm fearful of? Maybe they're afraid of being conquered and overrun and wiped out. And this psalm addresses that. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, you comfort me. So again, you got to understand the Old Testament context. So imagine these people living in Egypt, the most powerful nation that they knew of in the entire world that they knew existed. Pharaoh's the most powerful god of all. Ra is the most powerful of all the gods, the sun god. There is no way they're getting out of here. No way. Until Moses shows up. And then Moses becomes the tool through which Pharaoh is made to look silly. There's frogs everywhere. There's blood everywhere. People got boils breaking out all over. And finally, he just says, you know what? Leave. And while you're leaving, here, take the platinum gold card with you and just take all of our money and just please, just don't let the door hit you guys on the way out. And Pharaoh changes his mind and he goes to get them. And they all drown. And they wander for 40 years in the wilderness and over and over and over again, as long as they're trusting in the Lord, the Lord wipes out all of their enemies. And then he takes them to the edge of the promised land. And he says to Joshua, be strong and courageous and do not fear. 
Because remember, they, they'd gotten here before and they were terrified, like, oh, those people are big, we shouldn't even go in there. God had to teach them a lesson. Listen, do you not understand that I got this for you? You don't need to be afraid of being wiped out. And so he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous and do not fear. And every battle that we have is a picture of God being completely victorious, so it's clear that he is the person who brings the victory. So, how many of you have seen the picture of Jesus? I, I, you know what? So I just could tell you right now, there's a whole thing you have to do when you're ordained where you have to say, do you have any exceptions to the Westminster Confession? And one of the ones that I have is the Westminster Confession says that you shall make in your head, you shall make no picture of any member of the Trinity real or imagined which means you can't even imagine Jesus or you're in trouble as far as the confession goes. And I said, yeah, I got, a, I got a problem with that one. I think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are so good at telling the story that I conjure up a person on a donkey coming in to Jerusalem. And so I guess I'm in violation, so I have an exception to that. I picture Jesus. I don't think I should worship the picture, but I can picture him. And so we have pictures, right? And one of my favorite pictures, because it's not good, is this picture of Jesus looking very white and very Caucasian with a very nice haircut and a very groomed beard. And he's got a little lamb around his shoulders. Have you seen this picture? And he's just looking very happy. Hi, Jesus, I have a lamb on my shoulders. And that's, that's good in the sense that Jesus does go and look for little lambs like us and puts us on his shoulders. But here's what's wrong with that picture. How did that lamb get there? So what we need to do is we need to picture Jesus. So kids, listen up, okay? You need to picture Jesus as like a warrior ninja. Okay, so picture Jesus as a warrior ninja who has a rod in one hand and a staff in the other, and it's not like he's going, okay, sheep, come on over here now. We're going this way. That's not the Jesus you're supposed to picture. What you're supposed to picture is a Jesus with a rod and a staff who knows how to twirl them in top speeds, and when an intruder comes to try to capture or hurt one of his sheep, he uses that to basically crack its legs and smash its head open. That's the picture of Jesus that you should have, right? Because that's what shepherds did. Shepherds were trained to use their rod and their staff to take out enemies. They were strong and they knew what they were doing. They weren't like, oh, little tiny sheep, I will help you. It's, hey, enemy, I will crush your skull. And so the reason that, this, that we can read this and say, your rod and their, your staff, they comfort me, is because we look at them and go, you know what? Jesus has the ability to mess you up bad if you come after me. That's this picture that we're supposed to have. So if we go back to Colossians, we have this passage here. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that's the gospel right there that we have redemption of sins after we've been transferred by God into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so maybe you're asking the question, okay, that sounds awesome, but how do I know I'm going to be safe in this kingdom? How do I know I'm going to be kept there? How do I know I'm not going to be lost and stolen away out of this kingdom? Who's actually the person in charge of protecting me in this kingdom? Paul knows that you have this question. He invites you to ask it, and he answers it when he says, he... The shepherd, Jesus Christ, is the 
image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him everything might be preeminent, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So the question is, who's going to protect you in this kingdom once you've been transferred there? And the answer is Jesus, and this is a picture of Jesus that is absolutely able to protect you, that you don't need to fear. This is the picture that we have of God. And so what else, what else do we fear? So maybe we fear being overrun, being crushed. And we know that Jesus is able to protect us from that ultimately. But what else do we fear? Maybe we fear being humiliated, being ridiculed. For whatever reason, happens at work, happens at school, doesn't it? Doesn't it, kids? Being ridiculed being humiliated at school, being made fun of. That happens. It's not fun. And this promises us vindication, rescuing us from the fear of being humiliated and ridiculed. Here's what it says. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So here's this picture, right? So imagine all the people who make fun of you, who tell you you're not doing it the right way, who say you're not worthy of being accepted, you're never going to measure up, you're a loser, whatever it is that they're saying to you, that you're hearing in your ears and thinking to yourself, okay, it kind of feels like they're right about that. I mean, I, I guess I do feel that way. Here's what this says. You get to imagine them laid out in front of you and Jesus coming in front of you and saying oh here have this nice table have this nice banquet here let me fill your cup some more let me anoint your head with oil as a sign of, of love and acceptance in front of in front of your enemies what this paints a picture of is that we are going to be vindicated even though every day the message that we get is that we are completely defeated and we feel humiliated and ridiculed. And what this is, is a promise that that ends, that that ends, maybe not in this world, but in the world to come, that ends, that we are going to be vindicated. And the great news is, is it's not because of what we did, it's because of what he did. It says, you anoint my head with oil, you prepare a table before me, that this is the work of God's grace to do this. So if you're here this morning and maybe you have grown up or maybe you have spent years hearing you are not worthy, you are not anything to be celebrated, you are broken down, you are useless. If that's what you've heard, here's what you need to know. Those people who are telling you that or the part of your brain that's telling you that that's wrong. You, God says, you deserve this banquet. 
You deserve this. This is who God sees you as, as a person worthy of a banquet, of a cup overflowing, of having your head anointed with oil. You need to hear that that is about you. That that's about you. Here's the other good part about this, about how Jesus rescues us from our fear. So all of us as parents, we've all done this thing where we wait for our kids in the pool. So you get in the pool, you go to the shallow end, you know, where it's like three feet, two feet deep. And you put your arms out like this and your kid's little, and they're on the, right there on the edge. And you're like, okay, jump to me. And you're, say, you know, in reality, a foot away from the edge of the pool. But the way your kid sees it is that you are miles out there and it's very deep. And so you know how this goes, right, kids? If you've ever been invited by your, by your dad or your mom to jump into the pool, right? So what do you do? You come up here. And the whole time what the parents are saying is, no, no, wait, you can trust me. I promise, I promise I'll catch you. I promise I'll catch you. You're this far away. And the kid is terrified terrified. So as a parent, we're like, this is irrational. I am one foot away. If the kid just like fell forward, I would be here. But to us, it seems like it's an irrational fear, doesn't it? We're just like constantly, no, no, it's okay to jump. But for the person who doesn't know that they can have confidence that you're going to be able to catch them, all these fears are in their head of what's going to happen. This is, this is who we feel like. We, we feel like this. And we feel like this when we're called into the mission of God. And so one of the things that God is encouraging us to do through this passage is to go ahead and jump in the pool. To go ahead and live boldly. To live strongly in the mission of God knowing that he will protect you. That he will catch you. So he rescues us from our frailty. He rescues us from our fear. And finally, he rescues us from our loneliness from our isolation. Look at the end of the passage where it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That we can have confidence that God will rescue us from our isolation and loneliness by bringing us into relationship with him. So as we talked about last week, this psalm, like many others, is set against this theme of dwelling that happens in the Old Testament. Where Adam and Eve dwelled with God in the garden and it was good and everybody was happy and then our sin broke that relationship so out of the garden we went. But throughout the history of mankind, God has never said, I'm done dwelling with you forever. He's constantly been working at reestablishing this dwelling. And when he takes them out, out of Egypt and takes them to the mountain, he says, build a tabernacle so that I can dwell with you as you journey into the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, he said, build a temple so that I can dwell with you there and I will be with you. And then in Christ, we have Emmanuel, which means God with us, that this constant theme of God working to reestablish dwelling with us is what this is about. That's what we should long for. We long for this reestablishment of this relationship where we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And some of us, some of us hear this. We hear, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of our lives. And we're like, okay, well, where's my Tesla? I kind of wonder that. Like, where's my Tesla 3? I would like to have one. 
That's not the goodness and mercy this is talking about. It's not talking about the world's goodness and mercy. It's talking about God's goodness and mercy. It's talking about God directing goodness and mercy to you based on the fact that he has promised to do that. So look at the passage. And what you'll see is it starts off with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It ends with, And surely I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I just want to make, if you've got a pen, I want you to correct your bulletin. Are you ready? So here's what you're going to do. Where it says Lord, lowercase, you're going to make that all caps because that's important. Because what that means is that that's the covenant name of God that's there. The name, as we talked about this last week, we talk about it over and over again in the Psalms. What this is saying is that God is covenanted with his people to protect them and to bring them into dwelling with him again. He gave them his name and he gave them a promise that I promise to rescue you ultimately from your frailty, from your fear, from your loneliness and isolation. And that promise comes to fullness in Christ. That Christ becomes the man through which our dwelling with God is restored. The sin that separates us from God is removed in Christ that we can enter into his gates with praise. Look at, the, look at the end of this. If you'll notice in the first verses, verses 1 through 3, it all says, He. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. He leads me. But then in verses 4 on, it switches. It switches to you. If you notice again in verses 1 through 4, you have this picture of the shepherd. But in verses 5 and 6, there's a picture of a host inviting someone in and this passage is a passage about increased intimacy with God of being in relationship with him it's a passage about being rescued by love and not just in relationship with God but in relationship with others think about this this song was not designed to be sung alone but be able to be sung together because God's house is big enough it's like a family reunion. Every Sunday, lots of people get in and we sing together. And so what does this psalm not promise? It does not promise that everything's awesome all the time or that there's consequences for our action because this psalm was sung by people who had the temple and God was dwelling in it. And it was sang by people in captivity who watched the temple be destroyed. And it's reminding them that that's the same God they're worshiping. The same promises are still in force, even when things are going bad, even though they're experiencing consequences. So it's a psalm to be sung by all people in all situations at all times. So if you're here this morning and you don't know God, you don't know Christ, I want you to hear this. God wants to rescue you from your frailty and take you to a place of flourishing. He wants to rescue you from your fear. He promises to protect you and to vindicate you ultimately. And he wants to bring you to a place of dwelling with him forever through Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to do this morning. And if you're here this morning, you say, I already know all that. And here's what I want you to hear. Jump in the pool. Know that Jesus has your back every minute of every day. He promises to rescue you from your fear, from your frailty, and from your loneliness. 
and that you can dwell with him forever because he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the fact that you are a God who promises to rescue us. And so, Father, we are so thankful for that. Father, we confess that we often convince ourselves that you're not going to do any of the things that you promised to do in this. And so we attempt to make our own way. We try to work our way to acceptance through our jobs. We are fearful of being overrun and crushed and humiliated and ridiculed, so we decide to bend the rules that you have given us for our flourishing so that we can find acceptance here. And Father, we confess to you that we feel like you just don't even care sometimes that you leave us alone. And so, Father, we confess all these things. We confess that we are afraid to walk as you call us to walk because of what will happen. And, Father, we pray that you would take our eyes and move them away from the consequences of following you in this world to the reality of what following you ultimately means. Father, we are thankful that you do promise to vindicate us and to invite us to dwell with you forever through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel this morning from Micah chapter 7. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep, God's steadfast love to you is fully displayed in him your sins are forgiven. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.